when you have that fervent an audience, never forget they are in control. It's never you. This is Podcast Perspectives, a show about the latest news in the podcast industry and the people behind it. I'm your host, Jeff Umbro, founder and CEO of The Podglomerate. Today on the show, we're speaking with Evan Shapiro, a self-dubbed media cartographer. I've been reading Evan's newsletter, Media War and Peace, for a long time, and it does an amazing job of breaking down the media industry of which podcasting is obviously a part of. Each issue of Media War and Peace contains amazing demographic information and maps explaining where the industry is at. He also has a background in podcasting from his time running IFC, the Sundance Channel, and NBC's CISO, their short-lived comedy podcast network. And then, briefly working with National Lampoon to revive the National Lampoon Radio Hour as a podcast property. On this episode, we'll do a deep dive into what's happening in the media industry and what that means for podcasting. Let's get to it. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. All right, we'll start really broad and then I want to really focus in on the podcast industry, but you have written that we are kind of coming out of or are amidst a media apocalypse. Can you give us like a minute or two on just kind of the general media landscape and like why we are in an apocalypse? I mean, I think it's like any post-apocalyptic movie that you ever see, whether, you know, WALL-E or, you know, whatever. Everybody who runs the ecosystem thinks that their innate habits and that their innate instincts are leading to a place of prosperity for themselves and their stakeholders. When in reality, the major movers in media over the last decade have basically been, you know, ripping out the guts of the fundamentals underneath the industry. On one hand, that's been positive because with each move, they're ceding more and more control to the consumer. On the other hand, they've kind of blindly been doing this because they think that each new movement in the ecosystem is in their favor, when in reality, in ceding complete control to the consumer, they've ripped out the engine of their business models. And so you found whether it's Spotify, who's never been profitable on one end of the ecosystem or any of the gaming companies who are now facing challenges and are ultimately going to be subsumed by larger companies, or most notably the, the television film Hollywood industrial complex, who found themselves after Reed Hastings got on an earnings call and said, oops, my business model doesn't work <laughs> early 2022. And they all went, wait a second, we were following you. So it's a self-inflicted apocalypse. And, and what, what I think everybody fails to realize is that we're not headed towards a new era of media. We arrived there back in November of 2019 when Disney Plus launched and they went direct to consumer for the first time ever with their, with their media. And they gained 10 million subscribers in the first month. And everybody thought that was great. And, and to a certain extent, it was. It gave the consumer even more choice, even more authority. But on the other hand, it ruined the basic economics underneath the business that they had been running. And they have no replacement for it. So, so they basically moved into a new house, but didn't set up the lights, um, the electricity, the water, the, the phone, or any <laughs> of the other elements. And then they poured gasoline to get heat, and now the whole place is on fire. All of this is self-inflicted, and it could have been avoided but now we're all, we are where we are, and now they're all grappling for the, a new business model. And I don't know that any of them have any idea how to establish a new business model. Well, so just to break that down a little bit, 
you're suggesting that when Disney, just as an example, went direct to consumer to put all of their products onto Disney Plus, they are giving up the business model of licensing their content to their competitors and that kind of thing. Is that is that the idea or no? Well, I mean, no. It's uh, so ESPN and Disney Channel and ABC are all wholesale products. They sell it to Comcast. They sell it to Charter. So yeah, to a certain extent, it's a licensing model. But they never have to worry about churn or customer acquisition or any of these other things that the cable companies were actually really, really good at, right? Here you have this pay TV bundle, a video service, bundled in with broadband service and telephone. When you combine those things into a package, it's a very elegant solution to a homeowner set of you know, what I call the hierarchy of fees. As people started cutting the cord from pay TV and landlines are no longer useful, basically ripped out the elegant uh, solution to the homeowner's hierarchy of fees without a replacement for it. Actually, we have a replacement for it. It's called Amazon Prime. Everybody has that bundle. No one's desubscribing from it. And so by selling their best content, to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, they created a replacement for themselves without understanding that they had no pivot to make that protected them. Now they're all selling their, their own products individually <laughs> to consumers. And the consumers are like, yeah, I'll buy it this month. But then when Loki's not in season or Stranger Things is not in season or Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan is not in season, I'm not. I'm going to cancel. Like, why am I paying? It's so easy. With the swipe of a thumb, I can cancel it. Jack Ryan and Amazon Prime doesn't get desubscribed because like the previous era, Amazon has bundled that in with free shipping and music and all these other services, all these other hierarchy of feeds, just like the previous era, but different. Google has built a suite of products. Grant, some of it is, you know, monopolistic and will be <laughs> disturbed by antitrust regulation. But when you look at YouTube, YouTube TV, YouTube Kids, YouTube Premium, YouTube Music, YouTube Gaming, and Google TV, and Search, and Chrome, and all these other things, they are surrounding the consumer with everything that they need on an ongoing basis. That's where we're headed. Big tech has, for the most part, begun to figure this out, but it's a completely different business than ABC and Disco Brothers and Paramount and Fox had been operating under in, a, in the previous era. From a bird's eye view, where does the podcast industry fit into this media universe? To a certain extent, it is so small, it, it reaches a level of insignificance that barely deserves attention. And I love podcasting and the, and the listenership is very large. But from an economic standpoint, this year, I think podcasting will do somewhere between three and four, maybe maybe $3 billion. Let's call it $3 billion. Yeah, it depends what the ad market bounces back as. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of money, but YouTube alone will do $30, $31 billion this year, just by itself, just YouTube. And by the way, YouTube is probably the most used podcasting platform. This particular show, it's funny because I always laugh when people use that stat, but this particular show, it's been around for two and a half months, very new. We already have over a third of our audience on YouTube alone. Yeah. And, and for a lot of podcasters, it's half. You know, everybody talks about Spotify. And by the way, Spotify is, is I would say, in very large part responsible for the, the recent meteor jump from where podcasting was before Spotify got into it, which was around, let's call it a million and a half podcasts in the ecosystem to where it is now, where there are about four and a half million podcasts. 
And and part of that was the convenience, and part of that was introducing what had been traditionally an old white art form podcasting to a younger, far more diverse audience, which is the Spotify audience, is a, you know one of the youngest consumer bases in media. But but then think about that for a second. Spotify invested two billion dollars into podcasting, an industry that has never done <laughs> more than two and a half billion dollars in total revenue. It doesn't make any sense. When you're betting a million dollars to win a half a million dollar pot, that's not good poker. That's bad poker. Yes and no. I'm going to push back on some of the things that you said. Spotify's investment was meant, and whether it worked or not, we'll, we'll see. But it was meant to look towards the future of podcasting. And, you know, 10 years from now, they might make many multiples of that annually or in aggregate. There's also a lot to be said that Spotify bought Anchor, which is like kind of an entry level hosting platform that, you know, you can record a podcast on your phone. Anybody in the world can do it. They can publish the platform. That is a huge part of the reason why they jumped from, you know, a million and a half podcast to four and a half million. I think it's actually over five now. And then on top of that, we had the pandemic to contend with. So, you know, a lot of people were stuck at home. A lot of big companies had event budgets and marketing budgets that they couldn't spend elsewhere. And they pushed that towards podcasting. So I think like realistically, we won't really know where the industry is going to be for another couple of years as it settles because we're seeing the results of pandemic eagerness now with all the layoffs and everything. But, you know, my, my real pushback point is like, whether this industry is going to be worth $100 billion or not, which, you know, maybe it is in 10, 20 years, maybe not, which would still, as you kind of just insinuated, would be fairly small. We're seeing a lot of different organizations push into this marketplace. Even TikTok just announced something where they're going to be doing like podcast integrations in their platform. We had Meta slash Facebook do an integration a little while ago pre-Elon. And I think still today there was Twitter spaces. What about the innovation that we're seeing in the space? And like, what do you think about the future of the industry? Like presuming that we continue to see growth as we have for the last 15 years? Yeah. I mean, when I say it's insignificant, I meant from a pure economic standpoint. I think from a cultural standpoint, I think it's hard to argue with how important podcasting is right now. More young people in the United States get their news from podcasting than probably a number of other sources other than social media, I would say. We did a survey on mobile news recently, Publishers Clearinghouse, TV Rev, and myself, and we found that somewhere around 25 to 30% of young people say they get a consistent diet of news from podcasting. But, but, but my fear or my issue with podcasting is a lot of people rushed into, it was like the MCN gold rush uh, of a couple of years ago, or the NFT, well, yeah. Well, I hope I hope it was the Marvel and not the NFTs. <laughs> and I think so many people rushed into podcasting. You know, everybody bought a mic during the pandemic without understanding what the true underlying fundamental economic. By the way, I don't think podcasting as an industry has really matured to a level writ large where anyone understands what the true economic underpinning of this art form is. I think there are very few people who understand that. And I include Spotify, and I'll include iHeart in this too. iHeart is the number one podcasting publisher or, or platform, however you want to describe it, I think on the face of the earth, certainly in America. Um, they do you know massive audiences on an ongoing basis, but they have like 900 podcasts. If you break it down by a per capita podcast listenership, they're very small. 
Yeah, their average podcast gets around 40,000 listeners. The New York Times, on the other hand, has about 12, and they get almost a million people per, per podcast. That's a way better business model. <laughs> Do 12, get big audiences, sell a lot of ads in it, as opposed to make hundreds, a thousand podcasts. Why would anyone make a thousand podcasts? Well, we, we, all know, we all know the reason, you know, it's like scale helps. and Scale does help if you're an ad business. But I do think where I see it going, I think Apple actually is leading the way, as they often do. Podcasting is named for their product, let's remember. I think their subscription product is the future of podcast. You know, you don't need a million listeners to make a really nice revenue if you have a subscription podcast that works. You know, if you can get 10,000 people to pay you $5 a month, that's $1.2 million a year. That's hard to do, but you don't have to attract a Joe Rogan sized audience in order to have a real business model. You can actually super serve a cult at basically. And Patreon really did preface this, but Patreon is a very friction filled ecosystem. Whereas with the subscription on Apple Podcasts, it's just one touch subscribe, desubscribe. The, the one downside is that if you're not in the Apple ecosystem, it, it doesn't work. So what do you think happens with like supporting cast and Patreon? Do you think Apple buys them one day? I don't think they need to. I think Patreon is, is killing itself, unfortunately, just through terrible management. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I think, you know, when Spotify finally figures out how to add a direct subscription per podcast yeah. to their platform. <laughs> Which another Apple tension point. Yeah, no, right. It's exactly right. When YouTube figures that out as well, I think that that will kind of fill that circle. But I do think the idea is you create a subscription product for your you know, cult where they either get it early or they get extra content and it's ad free, et cetera, et cetera. And then you do a second window with ads on all the other platforms and that forms your business model. That's a real sound business model because you get, you get your basic economics from your most ardent fans and then you get your kind of gravy from a larger kind of less dedicated audience. What's well, funny that you say that because we're uh, we're recording this early October and Pushkin actually just announced that they're laying off a third of their staff. And Pushkin, I actually think, is the company that's doing what you're talking about right now where they have their Pushniks, Apple premium subscription. They also use supporting cast for non-Apple users. They're also public or represented by iHeart who does all of their ad sales at scale. It feels like that's a company that did everything right. And like, they're clearly experiencing some tension and pressure right now. Well, I think, I think so Sony music, I would argue does as good a job of it. So that they have a really pretty decent podcast business and a good deal of it is subscription based. I think in both cases, because Sony music podcasting also announced a, a bit of retrenching and all of them are all, you know, Spotify is laying off everybody in podcasting. We interviewed Alex Goldman last week and and he said that of the 120 people he worked for the Gimlet, there's five left and Spotify did dispute that number, but it, it was a lot. Yeah. And if you go back and you listen to the, that first season of Startup Podcast, everything at the heart of what their business model was about kind of got torn apart when it, when it moved over to Spotify. There's a moment in there where they talk about, you know, the basic kind of underlying fundamental mission of the company is when you look at the most popular podcasts in the world, they're very expensive to make. They take a long time. There's a high level of artistry to them. It's not two dudes talking to a mic. Joe Rogan is actually the exception, not the rule. 
you know, the highest per show audience out there is still This American Life, over a million listeners per episode. There was an episode of Startup towards the end where they basically said, like, do we go like the, you know, reply all model or do we go the Bill Simmons model? And now it doesn't matter because both companies are owned by Spotify. I think everybody believed that what was happening during the gold rush, which was also kind of coincided with pre-pandemic and then into pandemic, was going to last forever. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's not more, it's less better. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal about the end of peak TV today that I wrote about on LinkedIn. And I'm, I'm going to say the same thing about that as I do about podcasts, which is, yeah, it was a bubble. And every bubble bursts. They never don't burst. They <laughs> always burst. So you know, don't fall in love with, with a business model. Fall in love with a business. The era that we've entered is the user-centric era. This is officially the user-is-in-control era of media. And so instead of building more and more and more and more and trying to reach scale, 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 which ends exactly how they all ended, as we're seeing right now, Find something that you love to do, find an audience for that thing, super serve that audience, and everything else really does take care of itself. The second you lose the thread of who you're serving and why, that's when you that's when falls apart. That's and that's why Spotify, they've had a ton of layoffs this year. You know, Disney, they just lost the thread. You know, when you have that fervent an audience, never forget they are in control. It's never you. So which podcast companies, not to put you on the spot, do you feel are doing this the right way? I mean, Ira Glass and the New York Times, those are the only two I can speak to who I think are really doing it correctly. Less better. New York Times has 12 podcasts, a million people per. This American Life has one. Yeah. And it does 1.5 million people per episode. They invented cereal, which then sold to the New York Times for $25 million. No one is doing as well. And by the way, I don't think anybody is doing publishing as well as the New York Times. Like, I don't think anybody comes remotely close. They don't have 500 million monthly active users. Actually, their website probably does have a massive audience, but their business model is built around 10 million cult members, 10 million subscribers growing to 15 million probably over the next couple of years. But they're not trying to be everything for all people. They understand their audience. They super serve that audience. They give that audience a lot of control of how their subscription works. I got to be honest, you're, you're not sounding too optimistic about podcasting. I, I, th I Let me push back on that. I am, but you have to jump in understanding how deep the waters are. So if you know who your audience is, build a product that makes money off of that size audience. Don't think you're going to reach you know, my favorite murderer size audience because there are 16 billion true crime podcasts now. Yeah. They were first. Yes. You can't be first second. And so understand who your audience is and super serve that audience and then build a business model around that. Ultimately, if, if you have a hundred rabid listeners and you can get them each to pay you a thousand dollars a month, do that as opposed to trying to be all things to all people. There, there is not going to be a next Joe Rogan. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I think it's interesting because there are there will be like the next big podcast. Yeah. But it's gonna be because somebody, you know, really was thoughtful and, and did the hard work to grow the show. That's exactly right. 
So I can't let you go without talking to you about your past life in podcasting. Can you walk us through your experience with CISO and then also with National Lampoon? Sure. So to me, podcasting is step one of intellectual properties life as, and as a development tool for, for other media is fantastic. Noted by at, at IFC, actually, I was, I think, one of the first to convert podcasts into television shows. We did it with Comedy Bang Bang very successfully for a number of years, kind of one of the old school podcasts. But then we did it with Marin. We turned WTF into two really good seasons of television with Marin. I love that show, by the way. I was I was really upset when they got rid of it. Yeah. Well, I left and things kind of. <laughs> anyway, um, but then we, we subsequently did a lot of that at CISO. So we had a really good history of turning podcasts into great TV. Uh, we turned Harmontown into Harmon Quest, which I still think is one of the best animated television shows of all time, all due respect to Rick and Morty. We turned Put Your Hands Together into Take My Wife with Cameron Esposito and River Butcher. So we had a, a decent history of really finding great talent and great pieces of intellectual property on podcasts and turning them into television. At National Lampoon, um, which was a, a short period of my life, a lot of great things came out of that. A lot of not so great things came out of that. But very few people, I think, realize this. But Saturday Night Live was born out of the National Lampoon radio. Pretty much the entire cast and all the writers of the first five seasons of Saturday Night Live came out of a radio show that National Lampoon did basically in a closet to start in their offices. So, so I set out to recreate that. And I think we did a really, really good job of that. National Lampoon Radio Hour podcast was a scripted half hour sketch podcast with Cola Scola and Joe Firestone and Brett Davis, Alex English, and all these great, unbelievable comedy minds. And I just think it's probably the flat out funniest thing I've ever worked on. And then I actually now host a podcast with my daughter called Cancel Culture. That is basically a reaction to all the comedy bros telling you, you can't be funny anymore because cancel culture, which is total f Dave Chappelle. <laughs> and this was an answer to that. Every episode is somewhat built around the idea that young female comedians basically discuss a topic that is very, very charged with an old straight white dude, myself, and I attempt not to get canceled. And it's specifically designed to create a conversation around the current state of comedy, which is well, culture is not doing anything to comedy that comedy hasn't already always, if you listen to George Carlin, done to itself. The best comedy is never punching down Dave Chappelle. The best comedy is always, always punching up. Always. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This was a blast. Thank you. Thank you, Evan, for joining us on the show today. You can find Evan at his newsletter by Googling Media War and Peace. He's also on all of the socials, and you can search for his podcast, Cancel Culture. Have questions, tips, or podcast recommendations? You can follow me on all of the socials at Jeff Umbro. Podcast Perspectives is a production of The Poglomerate. If you're looking for help producing, distributing, or monetizing your podcast, you can find us at podglomerate.com. Shoot us an email at listen at thepoglomerate.com or follow us on all social platforms at Poglomerate. Thank you to Chris Boniello, Henry Lavoie, and Jordan Aaron for producing this show. Thank you for listening, and I will catch you next week.